Brienne, thank you so much for coming on our show. It is such a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. Now, DeMarco, is that Italian? It is Italian. It is Italian. I married an Italian man, which, I mean, I love his last name. So um, I didn't marry him for his last name. But when <laughs> we were dating, it was a selling point. So It was uh, a plus. Oh, for sure. What's your maiden name? So it's Saldivar, but it's, it's Spanish from Spain. And so I think they pronounce it with like the... And they spelled with a Z, so it's Thaldivar or something is how oh, wow. they would say Thaldivar or something. Uh, it's from northern Spain, which I've actually been to that area. It's a beautiful area, but— yeah. You would pronounce it Saldivar, uh, though. Yeah, and I think my parents, with their more Hispanic accent than mine, they would say, like, Saldivar. So, okay. Yeah, put a little flair on it. You have quite a story, quite a journey. Yeah. And right now you're in a bit of a transition— because you're ending your tenure here at St. Bart. Yes. So I um, was doing youth ministry here at St. Bart's and loving it. I have done youth ministry for a very long time. It is absolutely a passion of mine. But the Lord has called me to another vocation. I recently got married, and then we found out we were pregnant. So we had our first. And then a few months ago, I found out I was pregnant with number two and actually very pregnant, like— Found out I was like halfway through a pregnancy and oh had boy. no clue. Yeah. And so we're like, oh, we're having another one. So through a lot of prayer and discernment, I was just like, okay, like I think this is the next chapter for me, which has been a really tough thing to kind of grapple with because for so long youth ministry has been my primary, I guess my primary way of serving the Lord. And so to now be like, oh, well, now I'm going to serve the Lord through loving my spouse and loving my children. That's been a really tough mental shift for me. So, because it's kind of changing who you are in a bit. Absolutely, absolutely, or just how I see. Like, there was something <clears throat> very tangible about like I'm going to go to church mm -hmm. and be a youth minister, and I'm going to help kids. Yes, and it was very easy to see. Look, I'm serving the Lord. I yes. work for the church. My paycheck says Saint whatever church I'm working for. Right. Uh -huh. Whereas now it's like, oh, I'm changing a poopy diaper for the 10th time today. <laughs> like, how is this serving the Lord? But but it is, right? So seeing, making that shift is a bit challenging, especially because so much of what a mother does kind of goes unseen and is, is quite hidden. So I've really been trying to just kind of connect with Our Lady on that and uh, rely on her to show me how to be a, a good mother. Now, so. did you grow up Catholic? Yes, born and raised Catholic. So my parents... I would say growing up, we were a little more lukewarm in our faith. Like my parents, we would go to Sunday Mass, um, but we weren't really involved. And then at some point, I guess when I was in middle school, my mom went on a axe retreat. And at that point, she got very involved, and she came home <laughs> and she said— she, with, there were three of us. All three of you are going to get involved at church. She's like, I don't care if you're altar serving, uh -huh. ushering in the choir— She's like, you have to do something. You can't just go to Mass anymore and sit in the pews. So all of us did something. So we started to get more involved as she got involved. Um, so I would say, like, I definitely grew up going to Mass every Sunday, but it wasn't until I was in about junior high, middle school age where, like, oh, okay, now we're going to some more 
church functions. And now, in fact, it was it was too much for me. I felt like after mass, we were always standing there for an hour as she would talk to people. And she what just, what parish was this that she went on the axe retreat? With? You know, she, I I grew up in a small town, um, Abilene, Texas, and that's kind of where we were a little more lukewarm in our faith. But then we uh-huh. moved to Round Rock, Texas, uh, outside of Austin. We started going to a massive parish. It's called St. William's, and it is huge and they're very active. And so that's kind of the parish where we really got, you know, we were no longer in like a sleepy little town and, Uh you know, Abilene's kind of in the Bible belt. So a lot of the people that we knew there were um, Lutheran or Methodist or something, Baptist, Southern Baptist. So she didn't have a lot of friends in the church, but definitely when we moved to the Austin area, it like ramped up big time. So we got very involved. So, yeah. So that's the, that's the parish where your mom went on the axe retreat. Yes. So she went there, and then that's when um, we started. I started going to like their junior high program. I guess it was kind of, kind of like Life Teen, but it wasn't quite. I think this was before Edge was around, but uh-huh. it was the middle school equivalent of youth group, I guess you could say. That's very encouraging for me because when I went on the axe retreat, it was that was the exact same thing. I said to my I said to my son, okay, we're gonna get more involved in the church. I want you to do you know, and my wife was all on board completely. The axe retreat is awesome. Yeah, it awesome. definitely lights a fire. And I think I think for children, if they see the parents like really on fire for something, it's a lot uh-huh. easier for the kids to be like, okay, sure. Like even if maybe it's like, oh, we have to go to church again or oh, we have to do this thing at church. Even if there's a little bit of that in there, it's still like you can see that your parents have changed to a certain degree and you're like, okay, well, there's something there. And you can you can kind of feel out that authenticity that the Holy Spirit's working, even if you don't know that's what it is. I'm trying to get Herm to to go on an axe retreat. It's, just, it's, try, it's tough with his irregular work schedule. Because yeah. you know he works in media, so it's 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 getting it's away for a weekend is not always easy <laughs> for people. So I get it, I get it. Now, did you go to the same parish, or at least uh, somewhere near nearby, is uh, Katie Villarreal? Yes. So Katie was actually in my youth group. So, okay, I told you how I've been involved in youth ministry for a long time. So at the age of eighteen, I started helping out with our youth group there at St. Williams, uh-huh. and. Um, I guess I must have been about 20, young 20s when she was in high school. Okay. And she was in our youth group. And I remember I used to say to people all the time, I used to say, man, when I grow up, I want to be like Katie. Because she was so, she was just such a a powerhouse of a woman. And she was like a 10th grader. I mean, (laughs) I just couldn't understand how she could be so on fire for the Lord, so vibrant and and just like the, the zeal and the passion for the faith and the gospel. I mean, it was just it's fantastic. I also knew her older brother. He was he was like that as well. Her whole family, she comes from, I, my husband's an Aggie, and I don't think that it's because her parents are Aggies, but there's something about those Aggie Catholics, man. They just, <laughs> they breed a bunch of little Aggies that, I mean, she ended up going to A&M, but man, they were just an incredible family. So yes, I Grew up very close to her, so it was it was really crazy when I moved to this area and she was in this area uh-huh. uh, to just like reconnect. And I've gone over there to St. Faustina's for a few talks to share, and she's come over here. And that's it's awesome. Just, it's just wild to see how God works like that because I'm like, gosh, who would have known back then that you know we'd be here. So are your children destined to become Aggies as well? You know, the the ultrasound when we went for the 20 week ultrasound, we actually have a picture the. Tech took a picture right when the baby was doing a thumbs up. Oh, and my husband 
He was like, he's an Aggie. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. And, and you know, I, I give Aggies a lot of, like, St. Mary's is phenomenal. I was a campus minister at Texas State University. They're uh-huh. in the Diocese of Austin, and so is St. Mary's. Uh-huh. And anytime we rolled up, I mean, Baylor rolls up, UT rolls up, Texas State, and then St. Mary's, those Aggie Catholics are just, they're a powerhouse, man. And so it, it really is a beautiful ministry out there. But when I was at Texas State, both the priest and the uh, the development director, they were, they were the only other two employees there at the Catholic Student Center, right? Uh-huh. They were both Aggies. And so I worked with two Aggies, and they would always talk about, like, oh, I wonder when we're going to go back to the Holy Land. And they'd refer to, you know, College Station as that. And I, I couldn't get away from them. And I would always just kind of, you know, give them s- stuff for it and be like, oh, you Aggies, blah, blah. And then I met my future husband and I came back <laughs> into the office one day and to Father Craig. And I said, Father Craig, you'll never believe this. He said, what? I said, I think I really like this guy. I was like, but he's an Aggie. Like, <laughs> I can't, I can't get away from you people. Now I'm going to marry. And my husband was in the core of cadets. So he was, he drank, I always said that Aggies drank the same Kool-Aid or whatever, because they were on their cult with like all their traditions. Like, oh, you can't do this and you can't say that. And if you do this, blah, blah. But my husband was in the court and they took, they had even more traditions and Aggie things that they did than the normal Aggies. And it was just, it was a lot. So now (laughs) growing up there, you know, around rock in the Austin area, did did you pretty much stay involved in the church? Yeah. So what's interesting about my story, and I think it's it's actually a common thing, but just a lot of people don't maybe talk about it, is how how you can still be involved in church and still have a spiritual life and still believe in God and still have this this aspect of you that's deeply Catholic, and yet you're falling further and further into patterns of sin, uh, habitual sin, mortal sin, and that sort of uh-huh. thing. And um, it's weird because I, I think for a lot of people, at least for me, it was easy to compartmentalize my faith and to say, okay, this is me on Sunday. This is me at youth group. This mm-hmm. is me, you know, okay, I'm I'm in junior high and I'm going to our youth group thing on Sundays and maybe some retreats here and there or, or lock-ins is what was really big back then. Uh-huh. Uh, I would go to those things but then it's like, okay, but then I'm going to go home and I'm going to have these vices or these sins or these other things that I'm struggling with. And I could kind of separate the two and be like, this is me with my friends and this is me at church. And that took like a lifetime. And I think it's something that even still I have to really figure out what does it look like to allow my faith to transcend, to, to, to take such a deep root in my heart uh-huh. that every aspect of my life is affected by it. That there's no longer this like me on Sundays and then me, you know, at parties on the weekend or me with these friends or me with those friends. And uh, and that's a tough thing. So definitely when I was younger, that was something that like I could already see was starting to happen. But at the, you know, when you're in, in junior high, you don't think anything about it. It's just yeah. like, whatever, this is who I am with these friends and this is who I am with these friends. And, uh, and this is who I am at my church with my church friends. I didn't think much about it. Now, Tony... Castillo from San Faustina, he mm-hmm. came on the show and he talked about that, yeah. about, you know, he was singing at church, but then his personal life behind the scenes was just going, falling deeper and deeper. Is that what happened to you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I started to struggle when I was about 12 or 13. 
I started I started cutting myself and it was just this this deep desire to figure out who I was but more the, the bigger question was what am I worth like do I do I matter do people care I really struggled in middle school I feel like to make friends so physically cutting yourself physically cutting so self-harm um that's kind of started about that age and about that same time I discovered pornography and um here came something that at first seemed like, oh, well, this is no big deal, I'm not hurting anyone. Uh-huh. But as many people know today, it is extremely addictive. And so that began that addiction as well. Uh-huh. And I could tell that things weren't okay. Like I knew pornography was wrong and I knew uh-huh. I shouldn't be cutting myself. But once I started down that path, it it didn't seem like there was any other option because I'm like, well, what's the alternative for me to go to school every day and, and feel like a loser for me to like feel terrible about my, my body image. And like, I'd rather numb and I'd rather do these other things. So then at least I don't feel so terrible. Where did you, how did you cut yourself? Like it was. Well, so like, like on the wrists and stuff like that was uh-huh. kind of where it started. Okay. Um, the, the thing with that though. And, and I quickly learned because I actually had these friends who went and told the counselor because when you're cutting yourself in a visible place like that, like yes. you can't wear a hoodie every day in Texas in the summer. You know, uh-huh. like yeah. at some point people are like, bro, it's it's August, it's September, you're wearing a hoodie. Like what's what's going on? And so it's yeah. hard to cover up stuff like that. And so I had two good friends of mine who actually went to the counselors and reported it. And the counselor called me in, called my mom up there. And I was so mad. I was like... Those aren't my real friends. They ratted me out. Uh-huh. You know, this is. But they cared about they you. They cared about me, yeah. right? Obviously, now I see that. Yeah. Now I'm like, wow, those were actually my true friends. All those other friends who knew I was doing that and didn't say anything, like those weren't friends. Yeah. Now I can see it, but at the time I was so upset because I got in trouble. I got uh-huh. in a lot of trouble, and of course, then my mom's really concerned, and uh, and I I would think looking back, I'm like, man, like that should have been my my ticket out. That should have been my opportunity to say, yeah, mom, like things aren't okay. Uh-huh. Uh, I need to talk to someone or I'm really struggling. So you didn't seek therapy? Not right away. Okay. Okay. So I, uh, okay, mom, fine. I won't do that. And, you know, she grounded me, whatever. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and you, like, I, I kind of made some promises like that, but then I didn't come clean about like my struggles with pornography. And then- at about that same age, um, we were at like a, a party, a quinceanera or something like that, and I discovered alcohol. And people can go back and forth about whether alcoholism and addiction is hereditary or genetic or is it learned behavior and blah, blah, blah. Like, I really don't know. All I know is the very first time I drank, it did something for me. Like, I was a 12 or 13 year old little girl. And uh-huh. I remember drinking until I couldn't drink anymore. So it wasn't just like, oh, a sip of alcohol. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm yeah. done. Uh, it was, I'm going to keep drinking until I can't. And I wow. remember at some point I was looking at myself in the mirror and I'm staring at myself. And for the first time I felt okay. And I remember looking at myself and thinking that, like being uh-huh. like, Wow, like like I feel okay. Like I don't feel broken. I don't feel like a screw up. I don't feel uh, like the pain, and I I felt okay. And I remember even smiling and looking at myself in the mirror. And 
that was the beginning of a very of, of a lifelong addiction with alcohol at that point because it was just it did something for me like on a deep and profound level was it like how certain people who get you know in into drugs they they try to chase that first high absolutely was that what it, and I don't think I did it consciously. Like every time I drank, it's not like I was like, I want to feel like that first time. Like uh-huh. that's not the thought that went in my head. But I think on a subconscious level, you're looking for that feeling of just feeling okay again. But the problem with an alcoholic is you can't stop. And uh-huh. so I would drink to feel okay, but it always went so much further than that. And uh, And that was, again, at about the age of, 12 or 13, but alcohol was very hard to get back then. Yes. Uh, especially when you're that young. And uh-huh. my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so, like, good luck with that. So pornography kind of became the the go-to until I could get my hands on, on things like alcohol, like high school. As I got older, it was easier to get a hold of alcohol or drugs. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's when then it kind of went that way for a bit as well. Alcohol, pornography, and then you mentioned drugs now. Yeah. How did how did that start? So drugs for me that was a lot harder to get, and that so that didn't start until about fifteen or sixteen, and um, you know, I, it, it 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 sounds crazy to a lot of people, but one day I just woke up and I was like, I'm going to do drugs. Like I just wow. I just decided one day I, I was a hundred percent drug free. I'd never experimented with anything. Didn't smoke any weed. Didn't do any of that. And not I even just, cigarettes. N- no, nothing. Wow. And one day I woke up and I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, if I'm going to do drugs, I'm going to do drugs. So uh-huh. I was like, I'm going to do cocaine. Cause like, to me, that made sense. Like if I'm going to commit and li- be a drug type of person, uh-huh. I'm not going to waste my time with some of these other drugs and with uh, the soft stuff. Yeah. yeah working my hard, way up to it. I was like, no, it's let's go uh-huh. time. And, um, and I went straight to cocaine and started taking pills. And I quickly had an overdose. I'd say not long after starting at all, um, I had an overdose and my parents found out and they made, they had a little, like one of those drug tests, you pee in the cup and it uh-huh. tells all the things. And I tested positive for like four or five different drugs wow. at the time. And um, when you, when you overdosed, where were you? Was it at home? I was at home. I was at home and and, well, my parents, my mom was there and we were, we had sat down to watch a movie and my brother was there too. I have an older brother and a younger sister Uh and I like passed out, sort of like blacked out. And uh, my mom's like, that's weird. She fell asleep. I never take naps. Like Uh I'm one of those people that once I'm awake, I'm awake. So it was odd that I would fall asleep during a movie. And my brother starts laughing because, like, I'm, like, passed out in a very weird and awkward position. Like, uh-huh. not in a position someone would take a nap. Yes. So they were, of course, concerned. And right away, my mom um, realized that I was not taking a nap. So she started making some phone calls. I guess called a doctor friend of hers. And, and uh-huh. one of the things at the time, now this was 15 or 16, so high school. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go into law enforcement. I wanted to actually join the military, uh, do that for a while, be do, do EOD stuff, and and then uh, be a bomb tech, come out and do that as, as a cop and be a bomb tech either on a big police force or even go fed and do ATF explosive oh. stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I had my whole life figured out, right? Uh-huh. Even though it was a mess. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I know. I know what I'm going to do. It's all planned out. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had it all figured out. My mom was like, 
I can't, if, if we take her to the hospital, this could end up on a record and then disqualify her later on from joining the military or okay. joining, uh, you know, uh, yes. having a career. Yes. So she then got the test kit and made sure I was okay and that sort of thing. And um, once I came to, she had me take the test. And I remember, now keep in mind, I'm 15, 16 years old. Yes. I remember when I woke up from that, I was staring, I was on their bed in their bedroom and I'm staring at their ceiling fan. And I remember looking at it and I'm like, oh man, like I'm still alive. And I remember my mom saying like, you could have died. Uh-huh. And my thought was, I wish I would have. Because really? at that point, I was already struggling so much. I, you know, it felt like I was trying to grab at at something, at anything, and nothing was working. You know, pornography wasn't working. The self-harm behavior, which was still going on, that oh. wasn't working. So you didn't stop when you were doing the alcohol no, and the drugs? No, I mean, I, I switched to, like, instead of cutting myself, I was burning myself. Or, like, chemical wow. burns and stuff. Like, yeah, like, leaving some really nasty scars. And... um do you, you know. still have the scars? Oh yeah, they're there to this day, and it's, it's, it's tough to see them because it, in a way, it's like, gosh, like, uh, like I remember those days. It's, it's a constant reminder. Uh-huh. But in a way, I now see how God carried me through a lot of that, and so in a way, I, I need that reminder to show me like how much He has sustained me because I can get cocky now and be like, oh well, I have a good prayer life, and I haven't done those things in a while, uh-huh. and. And that's my pride because the reality is is that in a second I could fall back into it and be right back doing those things again. Like I'm totally capable of doing those things. It's God's grace that sustains me now. So those those scars are a reminder, but in a way it's like, yes, Lord, like thank you for saving me from myself. So you're lying in the bed, looking yeah. at the ceiling fan, thinking that you could have died. Is that what triggered the change in you or it's still going to be a while? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wish I could be like, and then I like turned to the Lord and never did anything again. Uh-huh. But at that point, we, my mom took me and got me into therapy. Okay. She knew like, okay, we clearly have some bigger issues going on. There's, yes. there's something deep. It's, it's not just about the drug use or the alcohol or whatever. There's something deeply interiorly going on Mm -hmm. that we need to look into. So I started going to therapy, but, um, you know, things a lot of times get worse before they get better. Yes. And for me, things got a lot worse before they got better. But this was the beginning of a lifelong journey of trying to figure out how, how do I navigate some of these, these behaviors? How do I eradicate some of these behaviors? Because obviously some of them you don't want to do at all. Mm -hmm. But, um, but and where does God fit into all of this? And people tell me I'm not broken, but I feel like I am because I'm struggling with all these things. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I eventually did start smoking cigarettes, right? I started shoplifting because that was another way to feel a rush and to oh, feel a high. Wow. You know, I, I had money. Like, I could, I could pay for this thing. But if I uh-huh. stole it, there was this thrill of, like, getting away with something. And um, the the—, the the buildup of like, oh, I could get caught and then walking out the door and being like, oh, I got away with it. And then there's kind of like this weird ego boost that happens too of like, look at how smart I am or uh-huh. look at how, you know, there were cameras in there and they still didn't catch me. And Did you go into gambling as well for another rush? You know what? You know what's funny is that is the one thing I never got into, but I always say that if I lived in a state where it was more like, you know, Indian reservations where you could go and like kind of access it, uh-huh. I would not be surprised at all if I got into it. 
because because here in Texas, growing up here, there wasn't much. I mean, online gambling wasn't even a thing back then because it was still the internet was still kind of we we're doing the dial up things. <laughs> you weren't really on there making bets on teams and stuff. But yeah. one of the things we haven't addressed yet is your tattoos. Yeah. You've got quite a number of them. I do. I do. People always ask me how many I have, and uh, I don't know how to count. So don't don't ask how many because, like, on my leg, for example, I have the Gospels. I have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh-huh. Well, I count that as one tattoo because it's the Gospels. Yes. But a lot of people count it as four because they're, like, stained glass windows. And so it's, like, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but represented uh-huh. as, like, the man, the lion, the, the ox or bull, and then um, the eagle, right? So— so they're like four separate pieces. So most people are like, no, that's four that's tattoos. Four tattoos. Are... So I, I don't know how to count, you know, because it's. And then you have on your arms. Yeah. Did, did these all, st- when, when did you start having them? So, so they all mean something. And a lot of them actually tie in directly with my story. Okay. I started when I was 18. I guess that was the one thing I waited until the legal age to partake <laughs> in. But part of that was uh, I had to have my mom sign off on it. Like she had to be there. I couldn't just show up with a signature. She had to be there and be uh-huh. like, here's my daughter. I'm going to let her get a tattoo. But um, I started getting tattoos. My first one that I got was a reminder of where home was. I got it when I was 18 because I didn't know. At this point, I was like, I have no clue where I'm going to go in life. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Uh-huh. But I want to remember that there's somewhere I can always come back home to. Like no matter how far I go, no matter how lost I might get mm-hmm. or how messy life might get, for me to always remember like, I can come home. I can come home to my parents. And so that was kind of like the first one I got because the future was so unknown for me. Um, but then I obviously got a lot more after that. And uh, and again, a lot of them, I would get them after like a big event. So like, um, like after rehab, I got one. Or after like praying for like this healing, this medical miracle. And that was granted, like I got one. And, and so they're, they're kind of... In a way, it's kind of like a timeline on my body. And um, so when I see them, I obviously see the tattoo that it is, but then I see where I was at in my life when I got that. Like, oh yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember where I was at. I remember coming out of rehab. Or I remember coming back from mission work and getting that. And and so they all kind of are these commemorative moments, I would say. Have you ever thought of having any of them removed? No, no, because with my tattoos, I thought about all of them for at least six months, like minimum. Okay. Six months, and if after six months I still wanted it, then I would start to plan, okay, well, what do I want? How do I want it to look? Where do I want it to be? Then I would start the design process. So none of them were impulsive. None of them were like, oh, I'm bored. I'm just going to, or I got money to spend. Uh They all have a lot of meaning, and so there's no regrets on any of them now. Do I think I'll ever get one again? Probably not. I think I'm done. I I think I got my last one maybe five or six years ago. Haven't gotten one since. Don't really have a desire to. But I certainly don't regret any of them either. Do you feel that people judge you when they see it? Sometimes, you know, I I got a job as a campus minister at Texas State. And I remember I met with, they had like a permanent community, like their parishioners. Uh And they were mostly retired elderly women. Okay. And I I met with them to introduce myself as the new campus minister. Uh And and so I'm there and I'm just kind of talking, sharing a little bit about myself. And one of them leans forward and she says... Let's just address the elephant in the room. (laughs) And I sat there. I had no Uh clue there was an elephant in the room. Normally, when there's an elephant in the room, you Uh kind of know what it is. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, there's an elephant in the room. Like, I 
and she goes, what's with all the tattoos? Uh-huh. And I'm like, all right, okay. Yeah, I get it. You're from a different generation, right? I mean, uh-huh. back then, prisoners had tattoos and maybe dudes coming back from the military, you know, they served in Nam yeah. and yeah, yeah, they got like a naked lady tattooed on them and uh-huh. like came back. Okay, I get it. And and I am in no way the type of person that thinks everyone needs to hold the same view I do. Like uh-huh. if you don't particularly like tattoos or you don't think that they're a good idea, that's fine. Um, but I like the idea sometimes of me, sometimes I'll roll up to church uh-huh. and I'll roll up on my Harley with my tattoos and I'll get off and people are like, who's this crazy biker chick here? And then I like take <laughs> off my helmet and I put on my veil and I go into a Latin mass. You know, I, uh-huh. I like that there's this, there's this disconnect that has to happen in some of these people's heads. And a lot of times it's the older generation, right? Younger people don't really think like that. But And it's something against the old. Again, they grew up in a different time. Yes. But I like that suddenly they have to challenge certain beliefs. Stereotypes. Or certain things that yeah. they held. And, and maybe they have to kind of check themselves on that and say, okay, well, well, she's here at mass. And she's modestly dressed and receiving communion, you know. Uh-huh. And so, anyways, I— I have kind of experienced that. Not, I, not all tattoos. I wear an earring. Okay, yeah. And I, I kind of experience that sometimes with people. I see them. They kind of look at me funny. And I'm like, well, I'm going up to the choir and singing with the choir. You know, it's, yeah. you don't have to fit in the, into this mold completely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in a way it kind of holds me more accountable to my actions because I know when I walk into a room, there might be some people that the moment I walk in, there's a judgment. Yes. And not that I have to prove myself, but in my mind, I, I know that in the back of my head. So I'm like, I have to love even greater. I have to show Christ even greater because I have to now break past a stereotype or a preconceived notion mm-hmm. that these people have. Yes. And, and so in a weird way, it causes me to grow in holiness. And I can see in my life too many instances, especially when I was doing street evangelization and, and mission work where, or prison ministry. Okay. I mean- I I might be tatted, but those those dudes I don't have any face tats. Um, so uh, where suddenly oh here comes this chick to talk to us about Jesus oh but she's got tattoos all right I'll uh-huh. hear her out so so I might lose a certain demographic of people but I'm going to gain another demographic that that are suddenly going to hear me out whereas maybe they wouldn't hear out someone who who looked a little differently. So Yeah, somebody who's a little more cookie cutter. In yeah, terms of- yeah. And and people can be dismissive and and again it's it's nothing against those people, but I, I think it's just a reality of who we are as people that we do see someone and kind of size them up and, and make these certain judgments and stuff like that. What about the youth that you've worked with? How do they They're like, Miss, can you call my mom and tell her that tattoos aren't against the church <laughs> teaching? <laughs> And I always tell the kids, I'm like, look, don't get a tattoo. First of all, you're too young. Second yes. of all, you don't know what you want in life. Okay, just uh-huh. just slow it down. But for them, again, different generation. Okay? That's true. The pendulum yes. has swung the other way, and mm-hmm. now everyone gets tattoos, mm-hmm. and it's cool, and you're weird if you don't. Um, although now maybe it's swinging back the other way. Now you're cool if you don't, but whatever. So the, the point <laughs> is that a lot of times they, they will kind of ask about it, and I'm like, look, guys, like the Catholic Church— does not make and does not have an, a stance on this because there's nothing inherently wrong with dropping ink into a pore, right? Uh-huh. So that's what you have to look at. Like, where's the moral? Yes. Well, it's not there, right? People do like to quote Leviticus about not tattooing your body. 
Uh-huh. Okay, but there's a lot of other interesting laws in Leviticus that we can also quote and be like, <laughs> yes. okay, are you following that one? Yeah. Like, oh, you shaved your beard? Mm, okay, well, that's also a Levitical law. So, yes. uh, but anyway, so yeah, working with the youth, it, it gains a little bit of, I wouldn't say respect from them, I would say interest. You walk into a room full of young people, uh-huh. and at the very least, they're intrigued because they're like, all right. If someone has that many tattoos, they have a crazy story. Uh-huh. Like, you just know. You just yeah. know that, like, this is someone who maybe didn't live a normal life. So you get a little street cred. Maybe a little bit, <laughs> you know. But I don't let it go to my head because sometimes, sometimes I also get cold easily. So I'll have, like, a shawl on. And uh-huh. if I'm wearing pants, you really can't see a lot of my tattoos. And uh-huh. then it's it's funny because I'll start to talk that way. And so everyone's like, oh, blah, blah. but then like if I get hot because I'm talking, I'll, uh-huh. I'll take off my jacket and suddenly everyone's like, whoa, like they, they kind of like- have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's always interesting when that happens too. But yeah, I definitely don't, I don't tell people like, hey, you need to get tattoos for Jesus or to evangelize or to be effective with the youth. Like, no, absolutely not. Like you need to be holy to mm-hmm. be effective in evangelization. You need to be holy to evangelize the youth or any demographic. Now, if you so happen to have tattoos, use it for God's glory. You know, anytime someone asks about my tattoos, especially when I'm like at the gas station or at a place where it's like, it's not in church. Uh-huh. I'm like, dude, let me tell you about the gospels or let me tell you about, um, let me tell you about this one that represents God. It's the lion and the lamb. Like, uh-huh. Let me tell you why that's a representation of who God is and being all powerful and yet completely weak and humble at the same time, you know? And so I kind of take it as opportunities like, hey, you ask. So how much time do you have? Because we're about to talk about life (laughs) and Jesus and rehab and all sorts of things. The conversation piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not use it for the glory of God? And and ultimately, that's what, when it says that your body is a a temple of the Holy Spirit, okay, it says to always use it for the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I agree that there are some tattoos that would be defaming of a temple of the Holy Spirit. So like demonic ones or, you know, vulgar ones, that sort of thing. Yes. But if, however, your tattoos are glorifying God, then you're still in line with that scripture. So I, I kind of use it as like, okay. And and sometimes, though, it's like people will ask about them when I, like, am least in the mood to talk about oh. Jesus. Maybe I'm having a bad day or maybe, like, uh-huh. I just, you know, some days you're just not feeling it and, or you just don't have the time. Uh-huh. And I'm always like, oh, I said I would always use these for the glory of God. Okay, let's talk about Jesus. Okay, uh-huh. you know, and like, it's kind of that reminder to like, okay, like, yeah, there's a reason why, and I have to trust the Holy Spirit, and so we're going to do it. <laughs> so going back to the, you know, the drug use, and how how far down did you fall? <sighs> well, I ended up in rehab by the age of 18. Okay, primarily for pornography use because really? I could not stop. Wow. And uh and I was young and back then this was a while ago. Back then pornography was not recognized universally yet by clinicians as an addiction. Okay. Back then there were pockets of rehab facilities or or doctors who would say yes this has um addictive tendencies or whatever they would kind of recognize it but now it's everyone yes. recognizes it but at the time, and so we had to find a, a facility out in Arizona and pay top dollar for me to go there because these people were willing to treat this addiction. But it was really challenging because as a female, and especially back then, people were like, oh, well, only men, you know, struggle with that addiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same thing happened, though, with Alcoholics Anonymous back in the 1920s when AA started up. 
In fact, in the book, there's an entire chapter that's written to the wives because the men were alcoholics. Only men could be an alcoholic in the 1920s. Uh-huh. Now we know very well that yes. women can be like, turns out addiction does not discriminate. Uh-huh. Uh, and both men and women can fall into this. Same thing with pornography use. And and I fell into it and I fell hard and I could not stop. And I, and I knew it was wrong and I knew I was crazy. I I ran away one time because my mom called me out on it. And she's like, you have a problem. You can't stop. And I, like uh-huh. I had my laptop there and I was like just chatting to people in like a, a chat room or something. Uh-huh. But she was trying to talk to me and I couldn't even like stop what I was doing to look at her because I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to face the reality because I knew it was true that I couldn't stop watching pornography. And um, and I got so mad. I, I said, oh, I have a problem. And I slammed my laptop shut and I yanked the cord out of the wall and I and I left. I like went to my room and packed a bag and I just walked out of my house and started walking. I didn't know where I was going to go or what uh-huh. I was going to do. But that behavior showed me like she called me on something that I knew was true but what made me run was that not only did I know it was true and not only did I hate that aspect about myself, but I didn't know how to stop. And it's such a disheartening feeling to know I'm doing something wrong. I'm doing something I don't want to do mm-hmm. that I don't agree with. Yeah. But what choice do I have? Like I, I've tried to stop. I've tried so many times to limit this or limit that. And I mean, with addiction, it's so easy to just find another way, even when you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm only going to drink on these days. Or, okay, well, I'm going to take away my internet at home, my internet access. You, you'll always find a way. And, and I found that to be true with me. And so it was, it was hard. But then when they offered me rehab at the age of 18, I remember agreeing to go because I, like, I, I didn't know what else to do. Uh-huh. So and, you knew I need this. You weren't in denial about that. It was just right. the fact that you didn't know how to. I knew I had a problem and I wanted it gone and uh-huh. I didn't know how to do it. And so I went to rehab. It was a 35-day uh, intensive inpatient program. And it was great. I went there with pornography addiction as the primary addiction, but also with chemical dependency use uh-huh. as kind of like a sub-addiction. And then um, same thing with like self-harming behavior, that sort of thing. And uh, and it was great because it got me away from like my phone, from computer, from just from life. It got me away from everything to kind of focus on some things and, and do some work. And I came back from that and got a job and started like working my recovery. And I was going to 12-step meetings and I'm like, just trying to get back up on my feet. And at about that same time, um, I started to feel this call to like go into mission work and like foreign mission work. And I was like, all right, Lord, hold on, wait. <laughs> so this whole time, before before you go into rehab, yeah. this whole time, were you still active in the church? Absolutely. So you had this double life. Yes. And that was exhausting. It was exhausting because it was like every Sunday or every time I would go to confession, there was this sincere and genuine desire to change. There was this deep longing for for more, for Christ, for God himself. And yet it was like the moment I went back to my routine, boom, I was right back in it again. And it just felt like like insanity. 
Like I felt like a crazy person because I was like, who does this? But but also when you're living a double life, the amount of lies you have to tell and the manipulation and the just like, okay, well, let me do this this way so they, they don't find out and let me do this this way so people don't find out at uh-huh. church. Like, I mean, just living that way is utterly exhausting. Did and anyone know, have any clues? No, I mean, my family knew I had stuff going on. They uh-huh. knew I was struggling. But I think for the most part, most people didn't think much about it. They, oh, whatever, you know, Brianne's just crazy. or she's Being just, a teenager. She's, yeah, a teenager, whatever. But like, I, I mean, at, at the height of my pornography addiction, I mean, I'm talking, I was watching it all night long, hours of the day, like wow. that sort of thing. Like, And at, at the height of my drinking, like blackout drinking every day, like- it's, and this was alone, not with other people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and part of my addiction going on for so long was because that secrecy and that shame, that level of like, uh, I, like no one can know of hiding things and uh-huh. stuff. Like it just, it really festers in that. And I think... I think part of that too is is the devil kind of keeps us longer in some of our habitual sins and some of that broken area because it's like, oh, well, no one can know. If people find out, no one's going to love you anymore. No one's going to like you. or uh, And so there's this like pull to say, okay, well, well, I'll just, I won't tell anyone. I'll just continue to struggle alone and continue to try to fight this uh-huh. alone and not be able to fight it alone. So, so you didn't reach out to like a, a youth minister or your school counselor or it, at all? Growing up, I, I did not feel like I had adults I could trust. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I wonder if, if I had an adult I could trust, would I have told them? I don't know because a part of me is also very prideful. And so to go to someone and say, hey, I need help, uh-huh. that takes a lot, a yes. lot of courage, especially when you don't know how they can help you. Because sometimes people are like, oh, well, how can I help? And you're like, I have no clue. Like I, I'm, I'm dying and I don't know how to not die. And, uh, and and so that can be overwhelming too. So I don't know if I would have asked, but I often wondered if I'd had a more, a deeper connection with some sort of adult that I could have been open and honest with, would I have told them? So were, you were probably thinking in your head, like, oh, how can this person help me? I'm not going to yeah. ask them for help. Yeah. Like I can't help myself. And in my mind, I thought, well, if I can't figure it out, no one can. Oh. Because in my mind, like I was the smartest person ever. And so- um, Like every sure, teenager thinks. Yeah. Surely <laughs> if there was a way to figure this out, I would have done it by uh-huh. now. And and I couldn't. And so how was someone else going to help me? So, um, and, but, but there was also a part of me too that didn't, because of the shame, because of this behavior that I hated and becoming a person who I hated, uh-huh. there was also a part of me that felt like I didn't deserve help. Oh, like, not worthy of salvation. Wow. And so that is kind of layered in there. In addition to not knowing how people can help you, you also don't believe. Like there was a part of me that was like, oh, I don't believe I, I should be helped or I, you know, that people should even waste their time with helping me. Wow. Yeah. What about, you said that you had you have siblings. Mm-hmm. How were they with your struggles? Did any, <sighs> did, did either of them uh, have their own struggles? Well, similar? not not in the way I did. Okay. Um, you know. Typical teenager stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I think for my parents, they could tell that there was a clear difference between maybe a few things that my brother did or my sister did uh-huh. versus things I was doing. Yes. Because again, mine was, theirs might be like, oh, we snuck out, went to a party, like yeah. friends, whatever. Typical teenagers. Mine style. was yeah. like, oh, she blacked out in her room and there's empty bottles under the bed. Like 
yeah. maybe not so typical teenager, right? So I think my parents could kind of see that difference, but I know it impacted them, and and I I don't know, and I don't know that I'll ever know the depths of how it impacted them, and that's the sad reality of addiction or or being an addict is even when I got sober, like I I still don't know how much it impacted them seeing me like that, seeing me like self-destruct, seeing me slip further and further into these behaviors and being helpless because it, it's such a helpless feeling for them, I would imagine, to to see me in that way and to not be able to do anything. So, um, yeah. Looking at your your brother and your, your mm-hmm. sister growing up and they're living more or less normal teenage lives and you look at yourself how did how did you feel about yourself seeing them not have to struggle with the things that you've had to struggle with there's a bit of resentment there i think at that time of like that they got to be normal uh-huh. and i could tell that i wasn't normal right but obviously now i'm like well what is normal and who is uh-huh. normal but at the time it really felt like well it's not fair that they can go out on the weekend and party and dabble in this and that and uh-huh. then be functional and be fine. Whereas I go crazy with these things and I black out or I overdose or I do it until I destruct and can't do it anymore. So in a way there was a, a bit of that, but there was also a bit of jealousy because it felt like like they had something I didn't. Now, obviously looking back, I know that they didn't have something that uh-huh. I didn't like a party with friends was not actually fulfillment and was not happiness. But in my mind at that time, it seemed like that was so much better than what I was doing. And so they had the better thing than I did. Cause sometimes when you, you look at somebody who goes through these types of struggle, you think, Oh, they will, you know, their home life is terrible or anything yeah. like that. Uh, but it, from what, it, what you're saying, it sounds like you had a pretty normal Absolutely. home life. And and when I got into therapy, there was a lot in the beginning where like all the therapists were trying to figure out like, okay, but who who abused you or who, uh-huh. how, you know, were your parents divorced and, and all these sorts of questions. And this is why I say like with addiction, it's hard to say, like maybe you're born that way. I, I don't know. I uh-huh. don't know. But in my mind- there was, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was in the PTA. She went to all of our functions. Every track meet I had, she was there cheering for me on the sidelines. My dad eventually started working from home. So even he was there a lot and he always provided for us. We had all of our needs met. We lived in a very, I, I would say they had a very loving marriage. I grew up witnessing what it was really like for two people to love each other. You know, they're still married to this day, going on 30 or 40 years or something like that. And And so it's like, in a way, that question can sometimes be a dangerous one because then I grew up like, man, I must be even more messed up. Oh. Because at least these other people had a terrible childhood. These other addicts yes. were abused. Like, mm-hmm. what the heck is wrong with me that I went to church every Sunday and, and got new clothes for school and had all my needs met and I still ended up like this? I don't have an excuse Right. They've got an excuse, but yeah. I don't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, when you went into rehab, is that where everything started to click? <sighs> Again, I wish I could say, I wish I could be like, yep, went to rehab. We dropped tens of thousands of dollars. I came out, never tur- looked back. And, but, but I mean, like I said, I came out, I, I started going to meetings. I, I got a little bit of sobriety under my belt. 
And then God started calling me into missions, and and I went and did that. But the crazy thing about addiction is even after years of doing mission work, coming back, I came back. I'm like, well, now what do I do? Oh. And I was like, well, I'll do some ministry while I was doing ministry. And then I went right back into some of those behaviors again. And and that's the insanity of addiction is it, it doesn't matter how much time I had like abstaining from those behaviors. If I wasn't working a recovery program, if I wasn't actively working on these things, it it's like dormant, like it's there. It's just waiting. So yeah, maybe I wasn't blacking out when I was uh, in other countries doing mission work. But as soon as I got back and I turned 21 in that time. And I was in the state of Louisiana when I came back. Oh, and, boy. And there they have very loose alcohol laws. Yes. You can buy it anywhere at any time. You know, Texas, you kind of have to go to a liquor store certain hours of the day. Sunday mornings. Yeah, could, Sunday yeah. mornings. <laughs> but Louisiana was like, oh, you want to drink till 6 a.m.? Like, the bars don't close at 2 a.m. in Louisiana, you know? And it was just, you, you can get to-go drinks and, and uh, walk around with alcohol there. And so, like, it, I went crazy when I got back. Wow. So you were, you went on mission trips and everything was fine. You didn't fall off the wagon. You wouldn't have thought that you had an addiction looking at you. I was struggling spiritually because I think a lot of me was homesick and being in other countries and that sort of thing. So I, Uh I, you know, there was some stuff of like, okay, trying to work through that in prayer and that sort of thing. But I really think God gave me the grace in that time to stay away from some of that stuff. Now I was certainly tempted sometimes seeing it, Uh um, but again, like just the Lord's grace. And and then I got back and it was like, it was like nothing had changed, nothing. I It's like I never left. And so I went right back into it. Now I was still doing ministry. Uh-huh. Okay, I was still doing outreach stuff. I was actually helping an organization called Fight the New Drug and they um, were bringing awareness to pornography addiction, mm-hmm. but, but through science. Like it wasn't on a moral like, oh, porn is bad. It was like, well, let's look at it lights up the same areas of the brain as cocaine or yes. like let's look at some of the, the recent data uh-huh. and this was in 2000 i don't know 2012 maybe so still kind of early on before everyone was on board uh-huh. with things and, and we were going to public high schools in in gyms and auditoriums and speaking and it was incredible and i was doing that but again i could compartmentalize that and then have this alcohol problem this pornography problem and then an eating disorder came into play once I got back too. And so now I'm like binging and purging and like oh, wow. my my days were insane. My days were insane. It was like I'd wake up, I knew I had to get drunk. I'd go to like the store, the grocery store. I uh-huh. would shoplift and steal food because I felt like, well, if I steal food, then it does, like I never really got it, you know? And, I, you know? and so then I would, <laughs> wow. I would binge on all the food and then I would purge. And then I'd go purge to the meaning throw up, throw up uh-huh. go to the next store, binge on all this food, purge, like steal, like, and then I would get drunk at some point and like pass out and probably watch pornography a couple times in between all that. And I mean, it was just, oh gosh, those days were just. How did that start? The, you know. The eating the, disorder? Yes. I, I lost a good amount of weight when I was in missions. Okay. Just from. Yeah, being, being in other countries, yeah. being active, um, you're maybe not eating potato chips all day on the couch because uh-huh. you're doing stuff and <laughs> yes. you're looking at starving children. And so it's like you're not just indulging left and right. And um, so I lost a good amount of weight. And I remember when I got back, 
people's reaction was, wow, you lost so much weight. Wow, you look good. Oh, it's wow. Oh, that look, felt good. It felt great. And I was like, wow, that feels nice. But then I'm, I'm back in America and now I'm starting to, to put on weight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh-oh, no one's complimenting me anymore. No one's telling me how good I look. No one's affirming me. Uh-huh. And so it was very quickly like, well, I know I can eat and then just get rid of it. Uh-huh. And um, and that became that became like a 10-year addiction, like 10 wow. years of the eating disorder. And um, just, just it, that one was really hard to overcome because of its the layer of shame that's also in that one mm-hmm. you know like it's 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 not fun to tell people about that that you're you know I, I had some teeth that like started to rot out from the stomach acid yes. like eating away at yeah. them you know i have all these like acid reflux issues now because that little flap that keeps my food down doesn't do it as well anymore cuz it's been just annihilated uh-huh. uh you know, and, and so there's a lot of like, I mean, it, it's gross and there's just a lot of stuff that's like you don't want to talk to people about. So that that one was really difficult. And it was, again, just thrown in the mix of all the other things I was struggling with. So in my mind, it was like if I go to someone for help, like where do I even begin? Like where do I uh-huh. – how do I even start? Like I'm such a mess. And uh, and so – Because you've, you've had all these other problems already and just add another one on top of it. Oh, we'll yeah. just throw this on there, you know. Wow. And, um you, you talked about your alcohol issues, drug issues, and then eating disorder. Did your general health get affected in any way to the point where you had to be hospitalized? So the bulimia at one point turned into anorexia, and I um, – Got down to like 86 pounds. I had lost my menstrual cycle for like two years. My hair had fallen out. I mean, I was like skinny. Like I look back in photos now and I was like, wow. But what's crazy is at the time, I couldn't even see that. At the time, I was still fat. Like in my head, I would look in the mirror and be like, man, I got so much weight. I still need to lose. Uh So again, seeing that insanity now is is really hard to take in sometimes. And so my, my... Health was absolutely affected. I had to work very hard to get my hormones back in check and and that sort of thing. Um, I had a, I guess it was a calcium deficiency just from like not eating and my bones got so brittle. I actually broke um, a wrist at some point. And uh, it it was, so you ask if I got hospitalized. The answer, the answer, short answer is actually yes, because this all culminated with a suicide attempt because like I, I explained a day to you. Okay. Uh-huh. So that was a day. Um, but then in the evening, it's like, okay, let's do the Bible study. Let's do the ministry. Let's do the whatever. Let's do the youth group thing. Uh-huh. Um, and living that kind of life, not only is the behavior wearing me down, but just the mental games of like keeping up that, but then also keeping up this other facade mm-hmm. of like, okay, I, I love Jesus. I want to help people. <clears throat> so I had a suicide attempt while I was there in in South Louisiana, and I took um, a bunch of pills, and I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I'm just going to to end it. And the, the attempt was not like, my life sucks, I hate my life. But really, it was more of just like, I don't know how to make this stop. And uh-huh. it seems like if I'm dead, it'll stop. Uh-huh. Not that I wanted to be dead, per se. But I just wanted everything to stop. I just wanted to find this level of peace. And it seemed like laying in the ground was going to be more peaceful than living the life I was living. Especially, again, the the 
duplicity of like of my nature, like that two face thing. Yeah, like that was that was killing me. And so, um, paramedics came, and um, I was taken to the hospital. Who discovered you? So what ended up happening, I was living with this lady and she had young daughters and they had stepped out and I did not want her daughters who were like elementary school, like little kids uh-huh. to come back and find me. Mm-hmm. So after I took all these pills, um, I called EMS and I said, hey, um, I lied to them about how many pills I took. I told them I took like three or four when really it was more like 50, right? Like, okay. Oh, I took three or four. It might've been too much. But really that was just me saying, hey, someone come get me. Uh-huh. Because then I knew they would take me out of the house and these little girls would not find me laying there um, because I, I I couldn't do that to them. And so when EMS showed up, I told them I was fine, whatever. Um, and uh, I had, instead of writing a suicide note, I had decided to like write it in, into my leg, like carve it. Oh, uh, wow. Cutting, yeah. And so they saw my leg bleeding. I told them I was fine. Oh, I only took three or four pills. I'm fine. And they're like, hmm. We see some self-harm, like, uh-huh. we think this might be more than just three or four pills, whatever. They were kind of suspicious, obviously. So they took me to the hospital. Well, when we got there, I told them, because I was an adult over 18, I said, you cannot call my parents and tell them I'm here. Uh-huh. And, like, they, I mean, it's kind of, they have to respect it's that. It's the law, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they couldn't call my parents to see if I had any medical conditions, if I had any allergies, blah, wow. blah, blah, because like, I, I wanted that I wanted to make it as hard as possible for them. So they wheel me into this room and this lady comes over, this nurse with a giant charcoal drink for me to drink. Mm, and yes. so could to absorb, absorb, yes. And she hands it to me, she says, I need you to drink all of this. And she's like, I'll be back in a little bit. She gets up and walks out of the room. And so I stand up and I walk over to the trash can and I drop the entire thing in the uh-huh. trash can. And I remember it was a giant empty metal trash can and it just pff, it just thuds when it hits the oh, bottom. Oh, they heard it. No, they actually didn't. I wow. thought they would have because I remember being like, wow, that was louder than I thought. Um, but they actually didn't. And um, and I sat back down and that was the last thing I remembered. Um, so for three days, I was like, I, at some point I went unconscious and they had to revive me, and I was actually in in the hospital, like, unconscious for several days. Um, and your I, parents didn't know about this? Well, eventually, the, the woman that I had been staying with, she called, because the hospital couldn't call them, but she okay. called them and told them my dad drove from Austin to Louisiana to go be with me in the hospital. And, um, and... I don't have any memories from that except for one memory in being in the hospital. And, um, you know, my dad had taken a photo, so I knew I did not. I mean, I had tubes all down my throat and my nose. I mean, like, uh-huh. I looked I looked awful. So, like, I can see the picture, but I don't remember any of that. Um, the only memory I have is at some point I come to a little bit. Everything's kind of hazy, and at the foot of my hospital bed— is um, one of the priests that we knew. Uh-huh. He was a Dominican priest, a, a little old man with these big old glasses, and he had his white Dominican habit and you know, with the hood and everything. Uh-huh. He was sitting at the foot of my bed. And I remember I closed my eyes, and I was like, okay, I guess he's, he's here or whatever. And then, but, but then when I opened my eyes back up, and now it was Jesus sitting at the foot of my bed. Oh, wow. And... I'm looking at Jesus and he's sitting at the foot of my bed and he's smiling 
and he's looking at me and he's smiling at me. And I was so taken aback because like here I am in what is very clearly the worst state of my entire life. I have tubes shoved down my throat. I, my hair is a mess. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in this awful And you're so place. super thin from I'm the eating disorder. Thin, yeah. This is rock bottom. This is, this is it, right? You know, and, and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking like, I just tried to take the most precious thing you gave to me, which is the gift of my life. Uh-huh. I tried to take me, your creation, your beloved daughter, and just take everything into my own hands and be done with it and say it's no more. I was like, you should be mad at me. You should be disappointed. You should be lecturing me. You should, uh -huh. like Jesus should have been at the foot of my bed saying, look what you did, you know, or uh -huh. you see, you see, you got yourself into this mess. Now what, you know, uh -huh. or, yeah. or, or this is what you deserve or, but there was not an ounce of judgment in his eyes. It was like nothing but love. And I couldn't understand how we have a God who can love us even when we do the most deplorable things possible. And, but there he was mm -hmm. loving me in that moment of utter brokenness. And then I closed my eyes and that was the last thing I remember. And then days later, I start to have memories of suddenly I'm at, I'm at back in Austin at my parents' house and my sister and my mom are crying and my brother's crying and they're like cutting off the drawstrings to like my hoodie and like pajama pants and stuff. And they're packing me a bag to go to a, um, what do they call it? It's like a level one psychiatric acute care. So it's oh, wow. Basically like, okay, you just tried to kill yourself. You have to go be hospitalized. So they um, took the drawstrings out so you don't hang yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and things like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and but that was and so then I end up in this like crazy place and you know it was it was just a, a wild kind of place to find yourself in because I felt like okay, I have my issues, I have my problems, but mm -hmm. I felt like some of the people there like really had some serious problems. So I was there a couple of days and, and I told the doctor I said, "Look, man, can I do like some in or some outpatient?" Uh -huh hospitalization instead. And they do have that. And that's like, you know, you're going up to the hospital, let's say eight hours a day, yeah. five days a week, yeah. but it's outpatient. So you're not like staying there. Um, and he released me to do that. And so I thought that was a little more fitting than, you know. Because the, the people that were there staying there, they were a lot more hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my roommate was, you know, like seeing things and talking to herself and that sort of thing. And so it just, it, it, and it's not to say anything bad about them. I just felt like, like maybe I needed a different kind of care than what was there. There, It okay. was kind of like they just heavily medicated everyone and was like, okay, go sit over there and color or something, you know, uh -huh. um, and don't hurt yourself or hurt other people. So I was like, okay, I, I think I need something a, a little bit different because I'm, I'm aware of what I did. I'm aware that it was wrong. Like I'm not oblivious to that. I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of it. So. so at this point, after, you know, going – through the hospital, seeing Jesus at the foot of your bed and then going to this facility, do you now see yourself as I can be saved? At that point, there was this bit of hope of like, okay, I still don't know how to help myself. I still don't know how to get out of this. But Christ has not abandoned me. Like he visited me in the hospital and he visited me with love. And it's like, okay, if, you know, if Christ is for me, who can be against me? Like, 
the whole world, all these sins, all these vices can be against me, mm-hmm. but but Christ is with me. And and so the, it was absolutely a, a boost in like, okay, I can do this. And um, it was still a, a long journey from there because mm-hmm. the thing with psychological problems and, and addiction and mental illness and that sort of thing is it's kind of like, like twofold. Like, yes, you need the spiritual, but you also need the psychological care as well. And it, yes. it really has to be both. I think sometimes people can say, well, just pray that it'll go away and like focus too much on on that. Or, okay, we'll just get on medication and, you know, don't bring the Lord into this until you, like, it has, it has to be both. It really has to be this kind of coupling of the two and really kind of coming at it from every angle because it's coming at you from every angle. So, um, yeah. So I really had to work on this. Now with your, you know, recovery and your road back, was it tiny steps or were there, you know, times when you felt, oh, I really turned a corner here? You know, I, at some point I went and I walked the Camino and, um, for those who, that is awesome. yeah, I'm like, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's walking across Spain. You start in France, you walk all the way. And I walked all the way to the ocean. Cause I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, like I'm going to wow. walk till I can't walk anymore. So I walked all the way across the ocean and, um. It's, it's much like that in that most days you're tired. Most days you're not excited to walk again. Your backpack's heavy. Your feet hurt. You have blisters. It's hot. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's really cold and rainy. But you just put one foot in front of the other. And that's, what I, that's how I had to treat my recovery. Oftentimes in, in recovery, we say one day at a time. Sometimes it's one minute at a time. I just have to get through this next minute. Uh-huh. Not drinking, not using, not doing these behaviors. If I can get through this next minute, I'll deal with the following minute, the following minute, uh-huh. or the following yeah. day, the following day. But I'm just going to get through today. And like the Camino, it's like, I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other. And I, and it is baby steps. I know there are plenty of people I've heard that who have had conversion stories where it's like, Jesus came and I saw him and I never used drugs again. Um I still struggled with a lot of my vices after that. And it wasn't, it it was the boost I needed, mm-hmm. but it was like, there was still a long road ahead of me. And for, I think my experience is a lot more common for most people in that it's one foot in front of the other. It's one step at a time. It really is just this long and frustrating process because I think I wanted the quick fix, uh-huh. you know, just like I wanted the quick high. Yes. I also wanted, okay, fine, God, you want me sober? will fix me like yes. today, like right now. Uh-huh. And he could, the reality is God absolutely could. He could fix me in a second and never struggle with it again. But what is God's will for me? Well, God's will was for me to struggle and to carry this cross for a lot longer than I wanted to. But if I looked at it as a whole journey, yeah, it's overwhelming to think, oh my gosh, I have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. So instead I looked at it as like, okay, today, just today, I'm gonna work on this thing. And today I'm going to stay away from these behaviors. And today I'm going to do this, you know, these recovery-oriented things to, to keep me in line. Um, and I just focused on one day at a time. At what point did you know, hey, we're, I'm at a good spot now? Oh, I don't know. Standing at the altar marrying my husband, maybe? I was like, this is pretty good. Uh, you know, Or at least have had it in check yeah. where, you know, I'm, I'm handling all of this stuff. I'm, I've got it under control. 
Yeah. You know, my life is back. Well, it was kind of it was kind of like whack a mole in that um, you know you hit one and then another thing pops up. So it's like uh, I was able to get sober. My sobriety date is February twenty second of two thousand sixteen. That was when I had my last sip of alcohol. Okay. Okay. So that kind of um, I had come out of the convent, and that's a whole other story. But um, I'd come out of the convent, and uh, I, I was like, I had been in the convent for a while, had not had any alcohol. I come out. Boom, fall right back into it. And oh, I'm just wow. like, are you kidding me? Like, I just had this ex- incredible experience. I just grew so close to the Lord. I was ready to give my life to him. Uh-huh. And then like that, I'm back in this. So uh, I got pretty serious with it. And I, I would say I hit rock bottom with alcohol. And that kind of, that's my recovery date for both alcohol. And I guess drug use might have been a year later. I think I maybe abused some pills, but not like hard drugs. Uh-huh. Um it maybe a year later, and so then that that kind of got addressed, and then um, with with stealing, uh, yeah, I was maybe like three years into being sober when I finally was like, all right, I can't I can't sit here and be sober in AA and you know be working this program and then be shoplifting. Uh-huh. So uh, so then I, I got that. And that was actually a lot harder than I thought because there's a part of me that was still getting a rush from it. Um, and then with with the eating disorder, that was up until like up until I met my husband, even because and now it wasn't as bad like at its height. Like you know, maybe I was binging and purging fifteen times a day wow. or something crazy like that. Yeah, at its height. But maybe by the time I met my husband, it was maybe like every couple of days I'd have a binging and purging kind of episode. Uh-huh. Um, and so that that's something that I feel like is is a little more recent. Pornography, uh, you know, that's that's a tough one because that is so like readily available. But oh, yeah, just a click away. Oh yeah. And so once I got married, I was like, I gotta get serious about it because I think I had this false understanding, like maybe many people do, of like, oh well, when I get married, I won't struggle with this issue of lust, and it uh-huh. will all just go away. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so it turns out the devil hates marriages, and what better way to destroy a marriage than that? So uh-huh. uh, I, like, when when we got married, I told my husband, he knew about all this and stuff, and, and so I told him, I said, hey, can we put a filter on my phone? Can I put, you know, these blockers on my computer and that sort uh-huh. of thing? So that's been very helpful there. Uh, but I would say at no point did I ever feel like I've made it because the reality about addiction for me and what I've realized is that like there's nothing to stop me. Like tonight, I could be under a bridge drinking alcohol. Tonight. I mean, I my head has not hit the pillow yet today, and that's why I have to take it one day at a time. Uh-huh. Because yeah, sometimes like I'm I'm at the store, you know, and a lot of times it doesn't bother me, but sometimes uh-huh. you know, it's a hot day, you see the beer on the ice at in the gas station right there, yeah. you're trying to check out. Man, you're just like, oh, cold beer sounds great, you know, uh-huh. or sometimes like the smell of it, and a lot of times it doesn't bother me. But it, yeah, every now and then I, I think about it, like maybe I could have just one. Like maybe I could just just have one beer, just have one glass of wine. Uh-huh. Wouldn't it be nice to just just have one drink? But the reality is that like my whole life, I've never been able to have just one. It's never going to be just it, yeah, it, it, never. I mean, I, if you're like, hey, well, was there a time you actually drank just one? No, never, not once. Wow. So it's not I'm, it's not possible with me. But there's that voice that says. You could probably have just one. Do you even stay away from sacramental wine? 
I do, actually. I do. And um, that was a tough thing because I feel like most um, recovery doctors or psychiatrists and, and p- even people in 12-step programs, like they might not necessarily be Catholic. And so I don't know that there's a universal answer. I have not talked to enough alcoholics who are also Catholic to know, do most Catholic alcoholics abstain from um, receiving the wine in mass? I, I don't know, but I personally was just like— You don't want to go down that— yeah, I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to test it. If, if yeah. he is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in both species, uh-huh. then I don't have to. I mean, now with COVID, I mean it's not really offered. But yes. um, but before that, yeah, I mean, there, I would stay away from it. Just yeah, that um, would be horrible. Going from church, having a sip, and then yeah, yeah, and I, and I don't know that it would do that to me, but I I don't know that it wouldn't. Uh-huh. And so for me, I just kind of err on the side of caution. But um, but I also trust like in in the Lord and like I've never had like an accident where like someone hands me a drink and there's alcohol in it. But uh-huh. I, I, I've heard of alcoholics who have, and a lot of times they just immediately turn to the Lord in prayer and uh-huh. um, you know and they're able to kind of work through that because sometimes that does happen. It's like oh you think it's a sprite or something and it's not or whatever. At what point in your recovery did you go back to? you know, serving, go back to like youth ministry. Yeah. Uh, Let me think. Okay. So early in recovery, I was still involved, maybe not to a a big degree Uh because I was like, you know, I felt like I was getting my feet under me still. Yes. But the more sobriety I, I, I got under my belt and the harder I was working this program, the more I was like doing doing my my work, I was making amends, I was like just just working on me. Um the the easier it was for me to plug in to ministry again. And the more I could thrive in, I found that it was a completely different experience this time because I was operating more from a place of like of my heart and of authenticity. Whereas before, like I knew what I was doing, like I knew the scriptures, I knew uh, it was a lot of head knowledge. And so when I was helping the young people, it's not that I was false. I think I was false with maybe who I was or where I was at, but uh-huh. I knew the church teachings. And so I was still teaching truth to some degree. Yes. But certainly when our, our head and our heart are aligned, and when our faith takes root in the heart, I think that ministry really began to take off. And so I found myself, uh, interestingly enough, I became a missionary at a public high school in, what was the year? I guess it was 2017, maybe. And my youth minister, I'd gone to him and I said, I don't know what you know to do. I just came out of the convent. I don't know where God wants me to be, how he wants me to serve. And my youth minister said to me, he said, look, we have 400 kids in our youth group. That's a big youth group, you know? So he's Uh like, anyone would look at that and say, wow, you guys are successful. He said, but there were 800 seniors who walked across the stage last year and graduated from our local high school that's Uh right around the church. He said, what did we do for those 800? Mm. He's like, how come we only help the kids who walk through our door? Why aren't we going to them and meeting them where they're at? Uh-huh. And I'm like, you're talking about like going into the high school then. He's like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm like, his name is Chris Bartlett. And, uh, he's a phenomenal man. And he said, I said, Chris, I said, we can't do that. Well, we're just going to walk in and say, hey, we're here to talk about Jesus. You know, it's uh-huh. 2017. Just let us like, they're never going to let that happen. He's like, well, let's pray about it. 
So sure enough, we prayed about it. We put together this proposal, okay? We went to the church. Uh-huh. We got the church to approve it. That was the kind of the first step. Yes. Okay, well, then we have to fundraise. Well, the money came right in. Okay, so then, so then that was a green light. And then I thought, okay, well, now we have to go to the diocese because the diocese has all these policies in place uh-huh. that tell me that I can't be one-on-one with a student or something. And I'm going to basically need to not adhere to those policies if we're going to do this but still be a church employee. I was like, there's no way they're going to approve this. They gave us the green light. Wow. Then we had to go to the high school and say, hey, can we can we do this in your high school? We went to the principal, and I was like, there's no way. <laughs> sure enough, the principal's like, yeah, yeah, of course you can do that. Wow. And so it just goes to show that, like, God really, like, if it's God's will. Uh-huh. Like he can move mountains, baby. Yeah. Like I mean, you know, like the red tape of uh, you yeah. know ethics That's and integrity, nothing. like yeah. the, all the rules of the church and the rules of the school uh-huh. district. That's nothing for him. So, um, so I found myself going to the high school, going to school lunches, going to football games, um, attending school events with these kids and bringing them Christ right where they were at. Instead of saying, "Oh, come to church first, yeah. it was no, no, I'm coming to you and I'm meeting you where you're at and I'm going to bring Christ to you in that. And it was, it was so beautiful. But I think, I think at that point, if I could say it kind of clicked me of like, wow, um, that's kind of when it hit me. It's like, okay, I've been sober for a year now and, and I'm doing ministry. And like, these kids are like responding in a way that I hadn't seen before. And now I'm helping them Mm -hmm. with a lot of things, you know, that I was not expecting that God would use from my own story. You know, all this like dark, shameful yes. past of mine, it turns out like I could relate to these kids suddenly in a way that that maybe no adult has ever related to them before. Yeah, like how you said, how can this person help me? They don't know how to help me. Well, you're a living example yeah. of it. Well, they'll look at you and say, hey, this person can actually help me Yeah, because they've been through it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, absolutely. early on in in your work with the, the youth going going back to serving, did the people you work with know what you had gone through and that you were still kind of on your way back? Sometimes I would let them know, like, look, I'm still on the journey. And I think that's an important thing. I think we have to be clear with people on that. Because if I truly want to help someone, truly, I can't just talk about all this stuff like it's in my past. Uh huh. Because... For most people, again, it doesn't happen in a second. It's a lifelong of trying to eradicate. It's a lifelong journey of trying to eradicate sin, of trying to overcome vice, of picking yourself up, falling, going to confession, confessing the same sins over and over again. And it seemed to me that although maybe I wasn't explicit and like detailed of how bad things were or maybe how frequently I was falling I think it is helpful to say, like, look, like, I'm, I'm still working on this, man. Like, it, it mm-hmm. still kicks my butt. I'm still having to ask God to help me with it every day. And, and to show them that, like, it might not be a quick fix. You might have to be in this for the long haul. And, and I think that that's okay to have that level of honesty. Now, especially when you're talking about an adult working with youth, though, there, there are some pretty fine boundaries there that have to be in place just because you do want to be careful about um, sharing too much or uh, maybe crossing a boundary with things. But uh-huh. but I, ha- I had no problems looking at a room full of people and saying like, yeah, I struggled with pornography and masturbation. Like, and, and I got to that place, not out of any place of pride, but because when I was a little girl in high school, 
no one was coming and saying that to me. Mm -hmm. And so I felt alone in it. I felt like there was something wrong with me. And so for me now, it's like, I'm not going to stay silent just because a couple people might judge me or because of my own shame or insecurity. Right. I've got to speak out for those, maybe those little girls who are in the room struggling with that. Like they need to know that they're not freaks, that they're not broken, that they're not alone. So yeah, I'll always go out and be like, yeah, you, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I did and, and I'm okay with that. Now you mentioned you went into the convent. Were you thinking of entering religious life? So, oh man, when I was about 16 or 17, I felt like God was calling me to be a religious sister. I felt like he was calling me to be his bride. And when I went into missions, I often worked with other nuns. They're, they're everywhere. Uh, religious sisters are all over the world. And so I got, I had the pleasure of visiting and meeting with a whole bunch of different communities and, and just seeing how beautiful it was. And I still felt called. I was like, I'm going to do this one day. I'm going to be, I'm going to have a beautiful habit uh -huh. and this is going to be me. And I was very convicted of that. Well, as you know, I, I came back from missions and kind of things got messy, things got ugly, but I still felt like I had this call. Like I needed to deal with all this stuff first, but then one day I'd end up in a convent and I remember I was at a retreat once and it was a youth retreat that I was helping with and I had gone to confession and I had this great experience and then we had adoration. So I'm sitting before the blessed sacrament and I'm just kind of quietly in prayer and I had this vision and Jesus kind of walks up and he sits right next to me and he says, um, so you want to be a nun, right? And I was like, Yes, Lord. Like, yes, I've actually wanted to for a long time. Like, you know, I've, I've been wanting that. Uh -huh. He goes, and he's like, you love me, right? And I was like, yes, of course. Like, I, I really do. He's like, so you're sure you want to be a nut? And he's kind of doubling down. I'm like, yes, I already told you. And then he cuts me off and he says, then start acting like it. And he got up and he walked off. And wow. I was like, and it just like, it hit me because here's, here's the reality about discerning a religious vocation. For me, it was just a thought. And in my mind, I just thought, well, one day I'll end up in a convent. Like yeah. maybe I'll wake up and end up there yeah. and, like magically or something. But the reality is you have to start acting like it. You've got to make decisions. You have to start actively discerning. There are things, there are tangible things you need to do. Uh -huh. I wasn't doing any of them. In fact, I was dating a guy at the time. Uh -huh. And I dated him knowing it was against God's will. I even took it to prayer and God was like, no. And I was like, yeah, but I really love him. And I haven't dated anyone in a while. So uh -huh. just let me do this. And then I'll go be a nun after this or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. If God says no, like just, just take his word on it because that was a <laughs> tough relationship to get out of and I could see how oh. he's trying to spare me from it, right? Oh boy. So then I I, I did. I, I started to, I was working a job where I was making a lot of money. I, I, I quit my job, walked away from a huge bonus, took my name off of my apartment lease, sold all my stuff. Wow. I started calling religious communities. Uh-huh. Well, a lot of them were telling me no. A lot of them were because like, of your past, because of my past, because I have tattoos. Like religious communities can say no for any reason, uh -huh. because there it's not like there's like a standard. It's like every community has their different. Yes, yeah. You know. So all of a sudden, I was like, uh oh, like everyone's saying no. Like maybe I quit my job too soon. Like, uh -huh. <laughs> and it was hard not to internalize that because the, the devil right away gets in your head. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, you see, like you thought you could be a nun. Like no one's gonna accept you. You're too broken. You're too messed up. Blah blah blah. So I just kept praying with it. I felt like the Lord was calling me. And so I, I did find a community that was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And and they were okay with like my past and that sort of thing. And, um, and Which so they, community is this? 
So this is the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity. They go by SALT. Most people that know them from Sister Miriam, she's a SALT sister. She does a lot of speaking at youth conventions, and I think their headquarters is out of Corpus Christi, but they're kind of all over the place. And so my formation was up in North Dakota, which was brutal because it was in the (laughs) winter. And, uh, ooh, man. So... uh, but yeah, so that was kind of the next step, and the Lord called me to it. And, and there how long was, were you in there? I was there for about six months. Okay. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the door was closed on that. It was the most incredible six months of my life. I mean, it was so fruitful, and I just like I fell in love with the Lord in a way I'd never loved Him, and the the peace, and it felt like it felt like both finding the person you're supposed to be with for the rest of your life. But also discovering your purpose, like what you were made to do. So maybe like mm. your your career. It's like finding both at the same time. And so it was extremely overwhelming. And, you know, I fell in love with the community. I fell in love with Jesus. And I was like, I was on board. I was sold. I was like, never going to look back. I couldn't wait to have that beautiful habit. And then they found at some point we, I was talking to one of the sisters and mentioned how you know, when I was on when I was younger, I saw a psychiatrist and they put me on these medications and stuff. I was like, you know, I haven't been on antidepressants in ten years. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's not an issue anymore. But you know, once upon a time, I was. And she's like, yeah, you know, these days they're so quick to give people medication. It's crazy, and it, she just kind of wrote it off. But I guess at some point, she then told her superior sister that, and this uh, group has a policy that you cannot have had any sort of previous psychiatric medication prescribed to you even oh, though wow. like i could understand if i was in the convent and like depressed and still needing medication yes you know, yeah you know yeah. okay like go address that like yeah. take care of that and then come back but it had been 10 years and uh and i was fine and she could tell i was thriving but she, they had to close the door they had to say sorry oh. you can't continue and i was crushed i remember going into the were chapel. you angry <sighs> no i i I was devastated and heart like I felt like I was dumped. Oh. And you know when you're dumped, you're not really angry. You're just kind of like, yeah, like the life was sucked out of you. Uh-huh. It's just kind of an empty feeling. And I and I remember I went into the chapel because I felt like it was an injustice in a lot of ways, um, like it was unfair. And and I remember looking at Christ on the cross. And when I told him how much of an injustice this was, and how broken I was, and how rejected I felt. I saw him on the cross and he was like, I get it. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, you do get it. <laughs> like if anyone, like that's the biggest injustice in the world. That's the biggest rejection. I mean, like he is rejected, utterly crushed on the cross yes. by the weight of the world of yes. all this, you know, all the sins of the world mm-hmm. are crushing him on the cross. And I reject him every day when I choose sin over him. I'm re- So it was yes. not only a rejection at the time, but a continual rejection. Like, uh-huh. If anyone understands the bitter sting of it. It's Christ on the cross. And so when I looked at him, I was like sobbing in the chapel. And I just knew, I just knew that he knew what I was going through. And I was like, all right, okay, like, fine. And this, this is this is somebody who understands. This is somebody who understands <laughs> completely. And and so I, I came out of the convent and I was like, now what? Like I'd gotten rid of my job. I had dumped my boyfriend. I'd gotten rid of my apartment. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and so that's that's kind of when I started that outreach ministry at the public high school because I was looking for the next ministry opportunity because now I'm 
Now I have no direction. Uh-huh. I thought I was going to be a nun. And, and I felt like God was calling me to be single um, for a long time. And I, I was discerning consecrated single life because I thought, okay, mm. maybe I won't have the beautiful habit. Maybe uh-huh. I won't have the community that I really want to have. But I can still be married to Christ. I can yes. still dedicate my life to him and serve mm-hmm. the church in a radical way yes. as a consecrated single person. So I began discerning that with a spiritual director. Now, you started going into, after that, through, after that high school experience, is this what just snowballed into your youth ministry pretty much? Yeah, so I did the high school thing for a while. And then, okay, that was another crushing moment, um, parish politics. So there was someone in the office who did not particularly like our youth minister. And as a way of exercising authority, this was the one program that kind of fell under, directly under the youth minister. Uh-huh. As a way of... I don't know, sticking it to him, I guess. They they yanked the program. Oh. Even though even though we had the funding for several years, even though there was so much fruit, we were seeing kids like coming back to church. Uh-huh. We were seeing kids like lives being changed. Oh, wow. There was so much fruit coming from it. Um and I was that one was really tough because it was another injustice again. But like I had fallen in love with these kids, you know, mm-hmm. and uh and I felt like I was going to bail on them like every other adult in their life already had. Like yeah. their parents who bailed on them, like their teachers who wrote them off because they were the troublemaker kid or whatever. Like like all these other adults yeah. who just were no longer there for them. I was going to do the same exact thing to them. And I, I couldn't explain it to them because I knew that they wouldn't understand. Yeah. And um, and it was just like, it was it was just an awful experience. And later on, the priest actually apologized to a youth minister and said that that shouldn't have happened, mm-hmm. that that was, um, that that was not okay. And, uh, you know, and so he clear, that's why I can say that this was why the program was pulled. It was not for any, pulled for any other reason. Mm-hmm. But then after that, I was like, okay, God, like, I, I don't know. I don't know what uh-huh. you want from me. Like uh-huh. I, I did the convent thing. Like I did the mission thing. I did the convent thing. I like love these kids with my whole heart and you ripped it from me. Uh-huh. Like, like, I don't know what you want. And so um, I had also been at that point sober for like a year and I had no clue who I was. So I went and I did the Camino. I was like, I'm just going to walk. I'm just uh-huh. going to walk and try to figure out like what the heck you want from me. That is awesome. And I remember I went and I did the Camino and I called my mom like the second day or third day I was there. And I said, mom, I said, I'm, I'm walking the Camino with Jesus. And she's like, that's nice, dear. And I said, no, really, the guy who plays Jesus, um, I don't know his name, but the one in the movie, he's here. He's walking the Camino. You're kidding too. me. So Jim Caviezel was actually out there walking the Camino. Oh, my god! Well, I was there. And it was cool because him and I kind of bonded because um, he's a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh-huh. And, and we were there during football season. And he was able to get streams of the game every now and then, or at least game uh-huh. highlights on his phone. Like I couldn't afford that kind of service in another country. But um, wow! So he would give me game updates. I'd I'd see him. We would chat and that sort of thing. And so it was pretty cool. Uh, and she's like, "Did you get a picture?" I was like, "No, I'm I'm the worst with pictures. Like I I went to <laughs> like other countries and did mission work. I'd come back with like five pictures after being there for like <laughs> six months. But anyway, so I did the Camino, and, and a big part of it was every day I would wake up. It took the scripture. There's a scripture where Jesus says, um, who do people say that I am? Yes. And some of them chime in. Oh, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. And then he goes, no, 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 no. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you're the Christ. And so that who do you say that I am, I kind of took that and I flipped it and I I threw it back at him, at Jesus. Uh And I said, 
well, who do you say that I am? Uh-huh. Because I don't know. Because my whole life I've been an addict and I've been defined by these things. Now I'm sober. And now I thought I was supposed to go be a nun and you rejected that. And then I thought I was going to be a consecrated single, like helping all these young people. And that didn't work out. Like, you got to tell me who I am because I have no clue. And when your whole life you've been defined by certain behaviors and now those behaviors are gone. I didn't even know, like, when people are like, oh, what's your favorite color? I had no clue. No clue what my favorite anything was. I didn't know. I didn't know who I was at all. So every day I'd wake up and I would ask God, who do you say that I am? And I would walk and I would just contemplate these things. And I walked it alone. Like, I mean, there's other people out there, you know, whatever. Uh But but I walked it alone. And uh, sometimes I chat with people. You know, like I said, I talked to, you know, Jim. Jim Caviezel was out there because he was about to do the movie on St. Paul that he was working on. Uh So he's there with his spiritual director and that sort of thing. So, like, I would chat to people and hear, like, oh, why are you here? And... That sort of thing. But for the most part, I was silent, trying to figure stuff out. And, um, and you know, I got to the ocean, and I was like, well, still don't have the answer to that question <laughs> after asking it every day. But then it hit me. Then it hit me that sometimes the reason for asking a question is not actually to get the answer. It's the fact that you're asking the question. And so the fact that every day I was waking up and asking God, who do you say that I am today, mm-hmm. Lord? Who am I today? Like turning to the Lord every morning and asking him to define me and for him to show me my identity and him to show me my worth. That's actually the answer to my question. And it's it's more about asking that question instead of me trying to figure it out or define myself by certain interests or hobbies or uh-huh. characteristics even. Like none of that is truly who I am. And um and so I was like, okay, I guess I wasn't going to get an answer to that question. But it, it certainly taught me to start every day asking the Lord that. Because, look, I asked society who I was. You mm-hmm. know, I asked the world. I asked these pleasures. I asked, you know, every men. I asked men for validation. Like, everywhere I turned, it was like, who am I? Who am I? Who am uh-huh. I? Someone tell me who I am and validate me and give me my worth. And that got me nowhere. Like, that put me in a mental institution and— So I was like, okay, maybe only God knows. And maybe he's not even going to tell me. Maybe the whole point of this question is to surrender to his holy will every day and allow him to redefine me every day and create in me a new creation every morning. And that's, I think, what the Camino was for me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was pretty, pretty powerful. And then after that, you went into youth ministry. And then I came back and I was like, well, maybe I'll just go go back to school and become a teacher because then I can work with kids and, you know, do uh, high school stuff. And I started going back to school and I was like, I being in ministry, so involved in ministry and then trying to go back to like a secular job or like just the uh-huh. normal, like, okay, I'm going to study was very difficult for me. I'm not saying it's like that for everyone, but for me, I could not, like, I didn't care about mitosis and meiosis and cell division. Like, I didn't care about some of these things because all I could think about in my head is that there were souls out there. There are people out there who today feel rejected and abandoned and alone. And they're going to die feeling rejected and abandoned and alone because no one ever told them the love of the Father. And knowing that made it very hard to care about cell division. Uh, or some of these things they were yeah. asking me to memorize and stuff. Yes. I was like, but, but 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 what about the masses? What about people who don't know that like there's a God who loves them? Uh-huh. Like, wh- what are we doing for that? 
So I quickly realized, okay, I need a full-time ministry job. And so I was praying for one and I thought there's no way I'm going to get one because um, <laughs> I don't have a degree. In most dioceses, you need a degree to be a youth minister. So uh-huh. I was like, there's no way I'm going to get one. But I started praying and I ran into um, Father Craig at a wedding, Father Craig DeYoung. And he walked up to me, said, what are you doing these days? And, you know, I played it off like, oh, yeah, I have my life together. I'm going to school and uh-huh. I'm going to be someone. And he goes, oh, man. He's like, well, you know, I'm I'm the campus minister down at Texas State. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm the campus, the priest there. Uh and he's like, I'm looking for a campus minister. And I remember, like, it was literally an answer to my prayers. But I was like, be cool. I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, wow. Okay, that's nice. Well, maybe I'll look at the application. Maybe I'll put one in. Like, I'm trying to play it off, like, cool. Do you think he saw through that? <laughs> Probably. Because in my head, I was like, ah, like, I'm, you know, but, uh-huh. but I didn't want to, like, be too crazy about it. Anyways, so he uh, he's like, okay, well, I'll send you an application. He took me down there for an interview and he threw, it was a tough interview. I was interviewing for like eight hours that day. It was wow. crazy. He had me interview all the staff, the focus missionaries, some of the, some of the students I met with. He then like grilled me in this interview of like asking me all these like questions like, okay, a kid comes up to you and they struggle with LGBT stuff. How do you handle it? Okay. A kid comes up to you. They're doing this. Like, what do you say? Um, you're on the street. Someone asks you who Jesus is. How do you respond? You have one minute or whatever. Like uh-huh. just, wow. Boom, 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 right. Just rapid fire questions and just th- for eight hours. Yeah. Wow. But I had had so much experience that not only could I tell him how I would handle it, but Uh I could tell him how I've already handled it. Like, this is what I did in that situation. This is what I've done in that situation. Did your past come up? During the, those interviews? Yeah, he knew he knew a lot about it because he actually knew me from, he was at St. William's. I think at the same time, Katie was there too. Man, we were we were crushing it over there But because <laughs> um, uh, he's, he's a great priest. So he actually knew her. But um, he knew, I think, enough of my story to, knew, to know that like I had a rocky past. Maybe he didn't uh-huh. know all the details, but he, he was aware. Um, and he said, I answered all his questions and just like, knocked it out of the park. He's like, I don't care that you don't have a degree. He's mm-hmm. like, you know, I want you down here. And man, campus ministry is where if had I not met my husband, uh-huh. I'd still be there. I'd wow. st- I mean, I was there 16 hours a day sometimes. I mean, and campus ministry is awesome because it's like, there's no permission forms. Okay. You don't have to call parents. Uh-huh. If people are like, Hey, after the Bible study, which starts at 9 PM, let's all go get pizza at 1 a.m., you know, like, uh-huh. I mean, you just, you roll with it and it's it's incredible. But also what I liked about college, doing college ministry was for about 10 years now, I'd been doing youth ministry with high schoolers. Uh-huh. And I would see these super on fire for the Lord seniors and they would leave and go to college. And then I would touch base with them halfway through their freshman year. And it's like, they weren't going to church anymore. Oh. They weren't active. And I'd be like, what is happening between senior in high school and freshman in college? Like, what's going on there? Yeah. That, like, like these kids are no longer, they're losing their faith. And so it was interesting that I finally got to be, like, on that other side. And um, I got to be there to really try to rope in those freshmen because I think statistically, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's it's a very high percentage that if they don't get involved their freshman year, specifically the first week of their freshman year. Oh, really? Yes. And so we put a huge emphasis on that first week of, like, trying to get in as many freshmen plugging them in, getting them plugged into a Bible study, 
or into the community, letting them know we're there. Hey, we have a full kitchen here. You can use our kitchen. We have couches. You can take naps in between classes, uh-huh. like just letting them know what was available to them. And then they would they would stick around. But yeah, if you don't get them that freshman year, it's not very likely that they'll come in the sophomore, junior, or, sen- or even their senior year. But um, it was such a beautiful college ministry was awesome because it really you really got into like the nitty gritty, some of those deep questions. High schoolers grapple with stuff, but the stuff they grapple with is a, is a little more not surface level or superficial, but it, but it tends to be a, a little more like that. Like, oh, I like this guy, and I don't know. Blah, uh-huh. blah, okay, okay. But then you get to college, and suddenly someone's like, my whole class is pro-choice, and I don't know if I should speak up when they're talking about it. Like, what do I do? Or suddenly, like, the, their faith gets challenged in a real way that, yes. that is— that they need someone to be there with them, kind of journeying with them on that because it, there's so much of like, oh, how to respond to this? Or the people on campus are screaming at me because I, you know. Yeah, they're more real world issues. Definitely. In and yeah. they're maybe more in tune with like certain political things because uh-huh. college campuses now are like hotbeds for that political activism type mm-hmm. of stuff. And so it was neat to be there uh, a part of that. But then also you get all these, uh, we had this, these four guys that came in one time and they. <laughs> They were all Protestants and they came in and they wanted to see me talk. And I was like, oh no, like I feel so disqualified. Like I don't have a double major in theology and catechetics mm-hmm. from Franciscan University. How am I going to answer all these Protestant questions? Like I don't have my scriptures memorized. And and they came in and they're like, well, we're here because um, we started a Bible study to prove how Catholicism is wrong. They're like, but um, we realize that we all want to come into the Catholic church and so I was like, oh, okay, like <laughs> that I can help okay. you with. <laughs> but um, but we got to see a lot of really cool stories like that of people um, having conversions or people wow. who would maybe stop by our campus, uh, the Catholic Center, to maybe debate and um, and would read maybe the church fathers or start to kind of look further into things and talk with other students. And then before you knew it, they were at the Easter vigil getting baptized in the church. So that was incredible wow. to see some of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now you've got a, a you've got a ton of stories, I'm sure, for all of your experiences. I mean, going on all of these missions and all of that. We don't have time to tackle it all now, but we hope that you can come back again and you know go a little yeah. in depth with with some of that. Yeah, you know, I've learned quite a bit just in in just firsthand experience. How do you talk to someone about Christ? How do you I know sometimes people really struggle with like homeless ministry. Like how do I give someone money if they're just going to spend it on alcohol or how do I even know if they're homeless Uh or, um, you know, there's different, how how do I deal with, with an addict? How do I love them? Like what, what would Christ do? Uh, You know? And, And so some of these situations I've been in it and I have a ton of stories I would love to share or just some of my mission experience, seeing poverty firsthand, but then seeing Christ in that poverty seeing that Christ wow. has not abandoned those uh-huh. in that poverty. Those experiences, I think, are are things that not only help other people kind of struggle who are maybe struggling with certain things in the faith, but they help me because it helps me remember like, yeah, the Lord did do that. Yeah, God still performs miracles to this day. It's not just an old Bible thing. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's also very helpful, I think, for me to go back and recall some of these things That's awesome. and, and share it with the body of Christ. Like real quick, yeah. all the different things that you've done. So you've, you've said that you, you did the Camino, you went into the convent, yeah. you 
you went on mission trips to like what different places? So I did missions in Ecuador, Mexico, the Caribbean, the Philippines, Italy, England, and Spain. Um, did World Youth Day while I was in Spain. Actually, well, I've been to Spain twice, but the first time I was there, I was there for missions. And that's uh-huh. when they had World Youth Day and got to see Pope Benedict get up there and I mean, attend mass with the Pope. Come on. Like that's, that's right. incredible. <laughs> uh, so, and then Amazon Forest? Yeah. So when I was in Ecuador, we, gosh, we would take Christ into the jungle. Into the jungle. Wow. It, it would be like a priest. Wow. We'd take a priest with us. We'd take a couple doctors and nurses to uh-huh. address a lot of them have uh, some serious health issues going on. Um, it, but we would take a priest and like plenty of holy water because people needed baptisms yes. and all sorts of things. And we would hike like wow. three or four hours, I mean, deep into the jungle. And it was just going to these like indigenous tribes oh, and stuff. To, and, yeah. I know. We got to schedule you again to sit down and get go real in depth with all of this stuff. Wow. Yeah. I, I'd love to share that because I really do feel like my experiences showed me that we love and serve a real God who does things for real people in the real world. Like it, growing up in the faith, I thought like th- there was a God up there and then us people are down here. But but missions, prison ministry, um, working with teens in crisis pregnancy, like all of those instances, I saw Christ here, present for real people in the real world doing real things. And I think that's always something to share and to be celebrated, like the glory stories. I can come here and say like how terrible these addictions were and how much my life was like how dark things were. But I, I would much rather talk about like how glorious Christ was in that you know, and in some of those situations. Now you're starting a a new chapter of your life. You're putting aside the youth ministry because you've got another vocation yes, yes. that you have to focus more on. You're working on your second. Yes. The Lord child. called me to marriage, which to this day, I'm still like, how did I end up married? I mean, it happened very <laughs> fast, by the way, because when I was at the college campus, I still thought I was going to be a consecrated single person. I hadn't gone on a date in five years. And so um, I got, I dated and got married, was engaged, got married all like less than a year. I think it was like nine months time or something. And then and even the, the kids. Yeah. So then we had separated. first baby and second baby's on the way. So they'll Within be. Within how many? <laughs> so they're going to be about 15 months apart. So That's... it's it's pretty back to back. But um, I guess, you know, if, if being an addict has taught me anything, man, when I'm like, all right, let's do it. Like, let's do it. Okay, I'm going to be married. Like, let's just have all the kids, like, all at once. Like, let's do it. And and that's one thing, I guess, about me that's maybe a, a good quality is when I commit to something. You know, like, when God's like, go to the convent, I'm like, all right, let's do it. Like, let's sell all we have. And when same thing with missions. I got rid of everything. And um, How many months till you're due? I am going to have this baby beginning of September, beginning of September. So I've got about three more months. Hopefully we can get you in before. Yeah, absolutely. Before that. Absolutely. And you know, with my last pregnancy, like I was walking around, like it, it was not a, a tough pregnancy and this one is kind of following that same pattern. Okay. So I'm happy to come back and maybe sit a little bit further back. So there's more room for my belly, <laughs> uh, but I can do an interview again. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, this is an awesome story. And I'm sure, you know, there, there are people who are going to listen to this. Hopefully some young people who are, who are where you were. Thinking nobody knows how to get me out of this. And I just hope that people hear maybe some of the 
the similarities rather than the differences. I think sometimes when someone has like a really crazy story, you're like, okay, well, I've never done cocaine. Like I can't really relate. <laughs> but just the similarities that like we've all felt broken before mm-hmm. or we've all felt rejected or alone. And to know that like that Christ wants to encounter you in that place. And, and maybe maybe that encounter isn't the quick fix. Maybe it's a lifelong journey of, of coming to know the Lord, of putting one foot in front of the other, but to just know that like Christ has not abandoned you. If he was on my deathbed with me, like, like knowing that now helps me to like, okay, he's here with me now. When, when the dishes are dirty, when the baby's crying and I feel completely <laughs> overwhelmed, like Christ is here yes. and he's present with all of us and he's present with anyone, no matter how dark and bleak things may seem. So I can't wait to get you in again. We will do it. We'll do it. Thank you so much. Uh, Totally looking forward to it. Me too. Me too.